0: Welcome to The Author's Tale, casual conversations with prominent New Zealand authors, presented by me, Stephanie Fruin. All of the conversations take place at the author's own home, under COVID-19 social distancing conditions, so the sound quality at times is less than perfect. Last week we started prolific poet and novelist James Norcliffe's tale, We heard about him declaring his desire to be a poet from around the age of nine. And we were also told about his first efforts as a novelist with O'Fragis Day, which after complete rejection by publishers, has been placed firmly back in the bottom drawer. In this week's episode, we learn about his early poetry days and environments that encouraged poetry to be read aloud. And we take a trip to China, an enchanting country that took hold of James's senses and still stimulates them today. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and I was just writing poetry and uh, over the years and I started to get published in some better journals. I was published a lot on the a little uh, left-wing thing called the Monthly Review, mm. um, which I used to subscribe to, along with the new statesman you know, yep. and the English listener. Of course. <laughs> of course, as you do. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, so nothing much. I didn't have. I didn't even conceive of of putting them all together in a book until mm. oh, until much later. Um, so so it was quite a late starter, really, in terms of.
0: Yeah. Of so thinking. when you were writing your poems, mm. and um, were you performing them? Were you, or
1: were you yes, reading I, them I, amongst I, friends,
0: I, or how were you getting feedback? I, or well,
1: I I wrote them. I. I I did some readings when I was at training college, and they they went down really well. I then occasionally around town, I'd be giving readings, and I organised some readings. Um,
0: and was there quite a um, was there quite a good following in, in the day for for poets?
1: Um, later for on, yes, there there was. There was uh, the origins of. I was in at the start of a group called the Canterbury Poets Collective, which ah. has been going for thirty years now. And in fact, I've just I've just hung up my shingle. Uh, end of last year Uh, with with that. I'm still a follower and do a little bit of work for them.
0: The Canterbury Poets Collective, based in Christchurch, was founded in 1990 and is still running very strong today. It organises poetry readings, open mic events and publications for young poets.
1: But that started off uh, years and years ago with an Australian guy called Jeff Harping and his wife, and New Zealand wife Karen McNabb and they they started having weekly readings at the um, folk club in, yeah. in uh, primary training college in Peterborough Street and they were fun and they were fun and some of the old poetic identities the types of like John Summers and so, some of the young people like, like well, I was there and, and David Howard and yeah. and John O'Connor Bernie Hall used to come
0: so this is, for those for those of us who look at a lot of poetry and, because and, I think for a lot of people it can be quite intimidating, they pick mm, up a, mm. a book and they don't know how to read it. No. And no. I think for you to um, have the confidence at such a young age to, along with, and your peers at mm, the time, mm. to write poetry and perform it and read it to an audience, how do you know or how did you know that what you were writing was in the form and in the structure that made it poetry or was that something that you had been taught or did you just kind of acquire that knowledge through reading it
1: yeah was a through- passionate reader of poetry i read a lot and um, still do mm. um, both the traditional format and luckily i have an unerring sense of rhythm, so I yes. can write metrical verse, mm. because of possibly because I wrote a lot of comic verse, which is yeah. necessarily yeah. metrical, and got that off Pat, I can do that all the time, but yeah. of course that wasn't the fashion. The Brits continued with it for a long time, and the Australians, but in America there's this revolution of, uh, of open form.
0: Metrical verse has a recognisable pattern of stressed and unstressed syllables. One of the most recognisable forms of this for anyone who has studied English with a good dose of Shakespeare is iambic pentameter. Open form, or free verse poems, do not have regular rhythm patterns and are usually unrhymed. They don't follow traditional or specific patterns in rhythm, line length or syllables. For a lot of us, that can be tricky to work out. Mm. Uh, And uh, I think that's the form that intimidates a lot of people.
1: I think it does. I think it does. And... And uh, uh, it, and it was a it was a big and it took over New Zealand through the um, through the seventies and and early eighties and a metrical verse was seen as passe an old hat mm-hmm. um, and I I wrote the, in that form um, mm-hmm. but I also tried all sorts of other things I mean I, some of the American poets I just utterly loved and. Uh,
0: who, who, could, who could you suggest as being well,
1: someone on, People like E.E. E. Cummings and, uh, and Wallace Stevens mm. and uh, those early poets. But people like Emily Dickinson, too, mm. whose tight little yes. uh, cryptic narratives are, are just great. And, um, and it's, 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 they say there are two schools in America. Now, M- Emily Dickinson sort of heads into the more formal um, uh, academic type writing and then they got Walt Whitman mm. who was her contemporary leading to this great open sort of bar <laughs> yeah. on a mountain top shouting yeah. stuff that, that became with the beats and people like that mm. um, yeah. but, I, I, but I did like the beats I liked um, Getty in particular and Corso and never, I never quite got into Ginsburg. He was too, too sort of mm. shouting and prosaic for me. But, but certainly Lawrence Ferenghetti, who just died, I think, mm. about 102. Wow. Um, yeah. But so yeah. But, but the, the American schools were really, really strong with with New Zealand.
0: Let's take a moment now to have a listen to a couple of examples of these types of poetry we're first going to have a listen to one of Emily Dickinson's poems. Emily Dickinson was born in Amherst, Massachusetts in 1830 and died in 1886. Over her lifetime, she was a prolific writer. Although little was known about her writing whilst she was alive, after her death, publication and increased knowledge of her poetry has led to her becoming regarded as one of the most important figures in American poetry. Emily Dickinson Hope is the thing with feathers. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never an extremity, it asked a crumb of me. E.E. E. Cummings is considered a more contemporary poet. He was born in 1894 and he died in 1962 in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He is often associated with modernist free-form poetry and was experimental with his use of punctuation, syntax, spelling and structure. The Cambridge Ladies Who Live in Furnished Souls by E. E. Cummings. The Cambridge ladies who live in furnished souls are unbeautiful and have comfortable minds, also, with the Church's Protestant blessings, daughters, unscented, shapeless spirited. They believe in Christ and Longfellow, both dead, are invariably interested in so many things. At the present writing, one still finds delighted fingers knitting for the, is it, poles, perhaps? While permanent faces coily bandy scandal of Mrs N and Professor D. The Cambridge ladies do not care. Above Cambridge, if sometimes in its box of sky lavender and cornerless, the moon rattles like a fragment of angry candy.
1: And of course a lot of their the things were reader uh, audience generated as Mm. well I mean Ginsburg was basically a bard and talking and and reciting declaiming as a word probably declaiming his poetry Mm. and that was I think in New Zealand that's where a lot of that sort of stuff came from Mm. with readings in Auckland and all around the place Mm. and performance poetry became like Alan Brunton and that group called Red Mole was Mm. actually took the New Zealand poetry around the world uh, and I wasn't was particularly sympathetic to that that sort of thing, but I I did like the idea of performance. And yeah.
0: and, and I think within the performance um, sort of framework, it's often can be more accessible to people too.
1: Absolutely, I mean you are hunting for hunting for reaction, mm. and, and of course that, that pushes boundaries because the more daring and and uh, gaspy audience. <laughs> You can be, uh, that, that that's a payoff, but of course it becomes its own, it, it becomes self-defeating in the mm. end.
0: So you did, um, so your bottom drawer novel, we won't mention it again, mm-hmm. um, it has been put in the bottom drawer. What was your next
1: into trying to get published? Um, well, a, a magazine publication, and that, that proceeded through until I had enough. We oh, were into the 80s now, and I sent um, a manuscript, a collection off to Hard Echo Press in Auckland. They printed that uh, book.
0: And that what was that? What was that called?
1: That was called the Sportsman.
0: Oh, yes, and you you mentioned that about yeah. how you didn't like um
1: oh, the cover. I, I, I could uh, yeah. arguably the worst cover of any book ever published in New Zealand.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually I, looked, I actually thought that's actually quite funny. <laughs> when I read that you didn't like it, I thought, but why not? Because. <laughs> For so someone like me who didn't like who doesn't like rugby, yeah. and for those of you who haven't seen the cover, hmm. do you want to describe it?
1: No, oh, it's just a, it's just a, a mock-up of a of a of a guy kicking a goal, and I think with a human head or something. Uh, yes, yeah, so they've hmm. got the one rugby player lying mm-hmm. down on the ground yeah. holding
0: the ball yeah. to be kicked, and then you've got the other rugby, you know the. Player doing the kicking, but he's missed the ball and kicked the head off the person holding that's, that's the ball.
1: That's right. That's right. Yes. Which I just think is hilarious. <laughs> and if it had possibly would have been just that, but, but Warwick Jordan, the publisher, I think he thinks sort of printed another couple of sort of irrelevant rugby players,
0: floating <laughs> <laughs> so
1: in free space. It was. <laughs> And yeah, but the look on the on yeah. the
0: look on the head that's being kicked yeah. is this look of complete <laughs> astonishment. But the
1: but the, uh, the poems actually were, some of them are quite good. I'm still very proud of some of them. Yeah. But particularly the sportsman sequence, and one of the uh, the, the poem called the sportsman drops a goal has been <laughs> anthologised in about a dozen different places all over the world. Brilliant.
0: All. So that was the first. So that was yeah. your first main publication. Yeah. True publication. Yeah. Didn't like the front cover. No. And it was was one of
1: those hand uh, printed um, mm. machines. Yeah. And uh, I went. it's actually in in honour hunger. that the Warwick Jordan. Warwick Sven Jordan was Svenism. Used to book poems. So here's a poet too, and he published quite a lot of people quite early on, including David Howard and, yeah. and a whole lot of other interesting people. Um, and a f- not a, the publishing house didn't have a very long life, probably about ten years, twelve years. Published a few novels, but all, all on this sort of hand press. And I, he was quite eccentric. Mm. He um, now runs hard to find bookshop. In on a Hunger, but he's now shifted I'm down to Dunedin. Dunedin. He yeah, has been in there. Lovely Utah. bookshop. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's Eastern, great, isn't still it? around, yeah. And I didn't, I didn't see the book. Is that when you were overseas? Yes, it came out when we were in China, and uh, he sent me the page proofs. But the, but because it was a one of those offset printer things, the page proofs were on this. Remember, the old uh, used to get them on the um, newspapers. Used to give them out. Big. Sheets of yellow soft card with the imprint on it. Oh
0: my lord.
1: Um, And it must have cost them the earth to send them. Anyway, I finally got the book and thought, oh my god. And it was very badly bound, it was sort of perfect. It wasn't perfect bound, it had staples, but the cover was sort of looked perfect bound. Mm-hmm. And I know um, Kevin Ireland said, oh, a lovely book, i pity it fell apart after the first read.
0: <laughs> <laughs> would you consider republishing it?
1: Hmm?
0: Reprinting it, would you consider getting it reprinted?
1: No. No? No, no. one day I, I have dreams of perhaps having a collected poems and yeah. getting them, putting them in a collected poems yes. or selected poems because not all of them are good. Um, some of them are a bit weak, attempts to be funny, but it was basically, a lot of it was quite amusing. Yeah. And some of it was quite quite. Well lovely. it certainly has
0: that look about it, looking at mm, the front cover. Mm, mm. Sadly I couldn't get a copy of the book <laughs> no. to actually read it. No,
1: it's pretty hard to find now. Yeah, yeah. It was a fair I don't know how many yeah. printed, probably, probably a couple of hundred, three
0: hundred. So you ended up teaching in China, wasn't it? Mm, you, yeah. yeah. And yeah. also you did a stint in China and in Borneo, was it?
1: Much later, yes. In, in China, we were in China um, two years. We were very, very lucky. We managed to get a berth in one of China's top universities, what wow. well, they call the Key University. So it was like getting a gig at uh, Harvard or Yale wow. or, or um, mm. Oxford or Cambridge. Mm. And it was Joe and Lai's alma mater and it happened quite by accident. I was teaching at Māori High School then, deeply unhappy, and I saw on the Education Gazette that the... Uh, the um, Ministry of Education was um, handling applications for teaching at Chinese universities. And I thought, I'd love to do that. So I sent off my application and uh, nothing happened. And then a few weeks later, I got notified to say that they had shortlisted 36 people. And then nothing happened. And then, perhaps a year, um, I got a message to say that I'd been selected from the 18 who have been granted status of foreign expert and uh, I could um, I'd expect an invitation to China Fabulous Nothing happened (laughs) Months and months and months Mm -hmm. and finally um, Joan saw on the paper, I saw on the paper um, there was a Chinese academic visiting the University of Canterbury and and teaching Shakespeare Wow. and so I said, well, perhaps I ought to talk to this guy and see, see if he knows what gives. Yeah. And uh, his name was Wang Xiaomai. And he taught in the city of Tianjin, which I'd never heard of, although I should have, because it was about the third or fourth biggest city in China, just a few mm-hmm. hours south of Beijing. And um, anyway, he was a lovely guy really charming, he was boarding not far, we were living in Chancellor Street in Richmond and he was down on Stanmore Road and a, mm-hmm. uh, billet, billeted with somebody or boarding with somebody and he heard my story and he said to me a little sadly, well I'm sorry to report but you'll probably never be invited to China I said how so? He said well lots of people get given the status of foreign experts mm-hmm. but a Chinese university when they're choosing their foreign expert will try and choose somebody from uh, uh, a university in Europe or America mm. or, or even here um, so that then they can arrange a
0: arrange one of their change. staff can go and teach mm. there
1: and um, he didn't say it but I thought oh yes I can't see a Chinese academic wanting to get a job at Mario <laughs> High School <laughs> 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 ah, and then he said the most wonderful word he said but I said, he said there is a there is a chance um, because uh, in my wife's university, uh, Nan Kai, which I didn't know anything about, uh, they were they are looking for somebody to teach English, and, my, and uh, I had found um, a teacher in Christchurch to, to go over there. Uh, and I just heard that when she told her husband, she said he said, "You can go to China, or and have a divorce, or you can stay here." And she made a bad decision. She just she to stay there. Well. Yeah, what a yeah. A <laughs> so he said, that that position's vacant. Um, how about uh, how about writing to my wife and uh, and uh, seeing what the story is? And I did. And uh, and her name was Sylvia Wen, And she was lovely. And that, and that university, as I say, was one of the greats. I got the job, and we were off fairly soon. Wonderful. Shortly. Took the kids. And what a turning point. Yeah, Lissy was seven or eight. No, no, Lucy was six and Tom was nine and we're just a wonderful place and we lived in a studio, uh, teachers foreign teachers uh, dedicated building um, so it was full of people from all around the world fascinating people mm-hmm. we all fell in love with each other because yeah. we were shipboard romances
0: yeah.
1: um, some of two or three of our best friends were on, on that uh-huh. And that boarding house or, And the university Took us everywhere Yeah. So we saw all over China, Saw Mongolia wow. saw, Went out the Silk Road as far as Dali uh, Did the Three Gorges Before it wow. had been flooded um,
0: and of course all of that would have been at the time when China was only just recently open to the Western world.
1: It, it had been open a while, It was so it was 86 when we started. Were well, they still wearing
0: the um, 86
1: when we started. Yeah, so it was only 10 years since the end of this of the Cultural Revolution yeah. and 10 years since the death of Ma and Zhou Enlai yeah, yeah. Um, but it was already uh, Deng Peng was in power and there were waves of Liberalization and waves of repression and waves mm. of liberalization While we were there there were three oscillations Wow uh, Of, But but street markets were, were beginning to be everywhere and, and places were opening up I think KFC might have opened in Beijing while we were there Goodness me That sort of thing
0: Yeah
1: Yeah so it was a lovely time to be there and the people were great mm. And stuff starting to open up about what had happened Yeah. Uh, during that terrible time and mm. the Cultural Revolution, mm. and evidence was everywhere, anyway, trashed yeah. monuments.
0: And, and what it, an amazing experience and what an assault. I say I don't like the word assault. But this is what people say. The assault on the senses, not only, you know, going from oh, good old yeah. little old Christ Christchurch. We,
1: we loved it, um, you know, and going yeah. something so vastly different to. It wasn't easy. It was utterly, utterly challenging, but yes. it was just wonderful. I mean, yeah. the smells. Of, was, that's the, the thing.
0: It's, your senses yeah. are absolutely yeah. open, aren't live they? live
1: in a place where you, there was no language. Of course, it was before computers. Yeah. Uh, one of the one of the American. Was a university administrator. His wife was teaching, but he had a very small Apple, uh, one of the very first Apple computers I'd seen.
0: I I just yeah, those sorts of experiences mm. are the While I was there, I? Uh,
1: and uh, I was writing short stories, and um, I, don't know, I don't know why, but I sent them off to Radio New Zealand, and they liked them, and they they had a they had them read and,
0: yeah, and as a series
1: were... called the James Norcliffe something. something. Wow. Uh, and there were about, I think they did about there were about a dozen stories perhaps 13 in the book and they broadcast seven or eight of them Fabulous and They're beautiful, beautifully done and when I got back to New Zealand and I was in the Society of Authors um, Quentin Wilson who was just setting up Hazard Press who'd been going about two or three years um, came along to give a talk what it was like to be a publisher and he said, "As as you do <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I, if any of you have got anything in your bottom drawer you'd like to, uh, to share with me, I'd love to have a look at it. Please. So I, um, I had two things. I had a second collection of poems which I'd been putting together, because he was with Rob Jackman, he was setting up a trans-Tasman poetry mm-hmm. group, so he's publishing Australian poets and New Zealand poets and under the editorship of a Guy in Australia and Rob. And uh, I also had these short stories. And he said yes to both of them So that, that's how I started That's when it really all started yes. to happen Because a few We hadn't been home terribly long And I wrote that first children's book Called Under the Rotunda mm. And although Quentin hadn't bought, bought out any other ones I just said I've written This um, <laughs> children's book uh, Just tell me what you're thinking yep. You know Anyway he phoned back the next day and said, "I'm going to do it." So then I had three, which <laughs> <Yes. laughs> was typical of Quentin. Because <laughs> in the end, the children—I think the children's book came out first because he just loved it—and uh, and the poetry book did very well. It was shortlisted for the book awards.
0: And that was called.
1: That was called "Letters to Doctor D."
0: Oh, I've got that one. Mm. Yes,
1: um, <clears throat> but um, I was very disappointed in yeah. For some reason, it looked like a pamphlet. It has the same number of pages but he did it on a very thin paper And a very thin spine and we had That's a Very fine Yes <laughs> we, we, had a, we had a launch at Otago University in the staff club You know lovely freestanding building by the river mm. um, And Robert Sullivan was launching a book at the same time And there was quite a crowd of literary types there um, But Quentin had managed to forget to bring the books <laughs> Oh, no. And I think David Howard, who was living in Dunedin, had one advance copy, and he was he was staying with a friend who had gone out, and we had to, he, David had to shit up a, a lamppost, <laughs> climb in a bathroom window, retrieve the book, and we got back to the launch. and. Uh, in time. And that was the one we had, so I was able to read from that at the launch. Well, I've got... Just an uh, absolute chaos. But,
0: yeah, well, this is the, obviously, I've got this in my hand right now. So yeah. um, it's on the front cover, it has yeah. a photo of...
1: That's a Neil Dawson Sculpture. feather. that is. That's hanging in tier Centre. Neil's a friend of ours. And uh, just he's just perfect It's That's fabulous. And so it this. It suggests a quill, you know.
0: Yes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really pretty. And it does have very, you know, fine pages. Yes. Um, but when I was flicking through this book. I say I flicked through it. In fact, I read, mm. I read the whole thing. Um, and this, I've got a number of notes, as you can see by my mm, little, mm. little sticky bits here, about them. It's like you said before, mm. what you um, you sort of you know expose a little bit of yourself with mm. your within your writing. Mm. So I gather from this that you would obviously had a bit of history, you know, taught to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was one of those books that I found I was having to um, reach into Google. Yes. What is he talking about here? What does this mean? <laughs> Beethoven is in the wind which tugs at the petals, at the curtains Mm, and at the dreams mm, of Eudelon, Redon. mm,
1: Surrealistic. (laughs) very uh, Late 19th century, but sort of painted dreams and surrealistic and beautiful stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I thought, here's the prophecy according to James Norcliffe. And out there on the horizon, the world is being emptied by steel syringes. Yes, yes. And it's so true. Mm. And that's, that's Bohai no,
1: Bo, Gulf.
0: Bohai yeah. Gulf um, mm. is the that's, name of that that's poem. That's the
1: sea between China and Japan and Korea, the Korean Peninsula.
0: Yeah. yeah. But I thought, what a metaphor for the current state of affairs. Mm. You know, mm. when you yes, wrote yes. this um, back in, well, this was published. Yeah, oh, golly. 80s. Um, why isn't it where I look with 19 oh, 90. 1993 93 was it 93, bit, yeah.
1: Yeah, 93.
0: Um, mm. but I thought yeah what a metaphor for what's currently happening mm. with mm. the um, climate mm. change and I liked the use of the I thought the steel syringes whether you this is what you intended or not but when I read that I was thinking you know the word syringe mm. is obviously it's cl- very clinical mm. but it has the mm. connotation of um, healing
1: that yes. with it, yes. um, yeah.
0: but also of there being something wrong.
1: Yes, it's um, just looking out over the sea and seeing these great oil derricks littering the ocean, and the fact there are no there are no gulls, there are no birds. No, mm. very few birds in settled China.
0: Wow. Mm. Mm. Um, so we, then we continue through this book. I thought this was fabulous and this is to me a classic example of where you've taken a really obvious situation or an observation mm. that the rest of us would would note or most people would just note and let it wash over us but you've noted it and you've written about it bad breath of back alleys fetid drains oh, yeah. <laughs> but how true is that how many times have we stepped into mm, the back mm, alley mm. or out the back of somewhere mm. and you get this waft, and especially in mm. the likes of China What's that what's it,
1: what's it, part? Desert Dreams Oh Desert Dreams, yes, yes. But,
0: um, mm. but I thought, you know, especially when you are somewhere foreign mm. and the smells are unique and oh, yes. quite
1: overwhelming. Oh yes, it began, it began at, at, at Beijing Airport, we arrived at some godly time in the morning uh, late at night rather, early morning and uh, you we know, were taken Actually, Wang Zhaomei and Li Wen came up from Tianjin to, to meet us, and they took us to the Friendship Hotel we stayed in Beijing for a yeah. week when we first arrived, and it was summer, so it was hot and clammy, and the olfactory experience yes. of the Friendship <laughs> Hotel was utterly unlike anything we would experienced yeah. and it stayed like that the whole time we were in China, yeah. got used to it. Yeah, mm. And
0: then when you get back to New Zealand, you get off that plane and you take that Breath in, you go, I
1: know. Wow. I know. know."
0: Smell the fresh air. (laughs) What is this? of your humour,
1: the true story of soap. oh yes, yes, yes. That, that,
0: I laughed and that's laughed. That's always been
1: a bit of a crowd, please, of that one.
0: It, I'm not surprised. Yeah. It is absolutely hilarious, the true mm. story of soap, and it's one which I'll, I will actually, I'd love to get you to read the entire <laughs> thing. But just for now, I love this bit. So clearly, the poem is about soap. Um, but you've got humans and cats, uh, each fastidious creatures but as we cannot easily reach our backsides, soap is a convenient extension of the tongue. (laughs) Absolutely brilliant. We're going to end part two of James's tale there. Join me next time when we continue our discussion about his amazing poetry, but we'll also start talking about his novels, in particular his fantasy writing. Thank you for listening to The Author's Tale. For more information about James, go to James's webpage, jamesnorcliffe.com. Don't forget to subscribe or follow for free on whatever podcast platform you listen on to ensure you don't miss an episode. The Author's Tale is produced and presented by me, Stephanie Fruin, engineered at Plains FM and made with assistance from Christchurch City Council and Creative Community Scheme.